Thank you for listening to the SSPX podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. In this second talk, delivered by Father Stephen DeLallo in 1985 in St. Mary's, he discusses the importance of the Holy Eucharist. The first part of this lecture is given in the previous podcast, that on the importance of prayer. Now from 1985, here's Father DeLallo. This afternoon, I wanted to speak a few moments on the most important sacrament that the Catholic Church has. The most important thing, the greatest thing which God has given to man. And that is himself. That is the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, wherein we find the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, second person of the Blessed Trinity. Perhaps you don't understand the importance of the sacrament. It's the most important because, as I said, it contains God himself. God himself. And the great saints, one of them uh, of whom is St. Augustine, says that in no other religion can, man become so clo- can a man come so close to his God than in ours. <clears throat> and so first I'd like to speak of the prefigurements of the Holy Eucharist in the Old Testament. Those of you who have read articles in the past concerning this will probably already know. But there were a few figures of the Holy Eucharist in the Old Testament. It was such an important thing that God had to prepare the people before he would actually send his son down to earth. The same thing with Holy Communion. He had to prepare the people before he would institute the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. So in the Old Testament, we have a few figures. The first figure is seen in the high priest Melchizedek. I'm sure you've seen the name Melchizedek in your missal, the canon, concerning the sacrifice of bread and wine offered by him. Now Melchizedek was a high priest and also the king, the king of Salem. Now the word Salem or Shalom in Hebrew language means peace. And so Melchizedek was the king of peace, the king of the city of peace. And this is why the church sees in the priest Melchizedek an example of Christ. When you read the Old Testament where this is found, it's in the book of Genesis, chapter 14. The holy writer is speaking of Abraham and the war fought between many kings. And then, out of nowhere, it speaks of a king of a, a king and high priest Melchizedek, who comes to greet Abraham, offers Abraham gifts, and also is carrying with him bread and wine, which he will use for the sacrifice. And then there's nothing else said about him. And so, it is as if it were there were no beginning to Melchizedek, nor no end. He is just present as the king of peace and as the priest offering sacrifice. So this is an example of Christ, who has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. He's the eternal priest and the eternal king. Of course, the church celebrates the great feast to Christ the king. So this is one of the figures of the Eucharist in the Old Testament. The offering of bread and wine by Melchizedek, which, of course, is the figure of the Mass in the New Testament. And then we have the figure of the Holy Eucharist, in the Paschal Lamb of the Old Testament. 
I think most of you are familiar with the story of the Paschal Lamb. We'll just go over it briefly. As you know, during the time of Jacob, there was a great famine in the land where they lived. And so Jacob sent his sons over to Egypt for, for wheat, for corn, for whatever they needed to eat. Because the governor of Egypt at the time was very wise and had, for, and had foreseen in prophecy the great famine and had saved up the wheat and the corn in barns. Of course, Jacob didn't know yet, but this great governor was his own son, Joseph, who had been sold by his other sons into slavery. But he became governor in Egypt. And so Jacob sent his sons over to Egypt to buy some food. And they came back. But Joseph recognized his brothers. And eventually what happened, Jacob came back with the whole family. And Joseph provided a place for the family to live in Egypt. This is how the Jews came to live in Egypt. So there they were living in Egypt. But it says in the Bible that they began to grow and multiply. So much so that the Egyptians became envious at seeing the, um, the business, or the growing business of the Jewish people. They said, we're being taken over by these Jews. And so it began, or so it happened that the Pharaoh began to persecute the Jewish people and made them slaves. And so that's how the Jews became slaves to the Egyptians. They grew too fast too numerously, and they were very profitable in their businesses, and the Egyptians resented it, and so made them slaves. And this happened for, for years and years, and the people continued to cry out to God for a savior, someone to save them from their slavery. Finally, God sent a little boy, Moses, you know the story of Moses, and Moses grew up in the, in the palace of the Pharaoh not realizing that he was a Hebrew until later on in life. And then, by the grace of God, he was chosen to be the leader of his people, to lead them out of the Egyptian bondage. So he did this, of course, by the grace of God, by the miracles which God worked in the sight of the Pharaoh. I'm sure you know the ten plagues by which God punished the Egyptians because Pharaoh would not let the Jewish people go free. The last plague, of course, was the worst. It was the death of the firstborn male of the Egyptians or of, of any firstborn male in Egypt. But God was to preserve the firstborn male of the Jewish people. And in order to do this, the Jewish people were told by God to take a spotless lamb, to slay the lamb, and to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the doorpost, on the outside of the door. And then that night when the angel of death would pass through the cities, the angel of death would pass over the homes which had the blood sprinkled on the doors. And this is where we get the word Passover. And so it was in this way that the, the Hebrew people were saved from this punishment. But the Pharaoh, the Egyptians, of course not believing in the God of the Hebrews, did not do this. And so even Pharaoh's son died. And it was because of this that Pharaoh let the Jewish people go and Moses led them through the desert and through the Red Sea on toward the Promised Land. Now the Paschal Lamb is a figure of Christ and of Holy Communion. Because you know Christ is the Lamb of God. We say it every day at Mass. 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. And this is why he was called the Lamb of God. Of course, it was God who created the nature of the Lamb, the Lamb who would be very submissive and, and give its life, or, or be very, very passive when it was to be sheared. So as to symbolize Christ, who would just lay his life down to be crucified for us. The slaying of the Paschal Lamb is a figure of the crucifixion of Christ. The sprinkling of the blood of the Paschal Lamb on the doorpost is a figure of the sprinkling of the, of the redeemed people by the blood of Christ, by which we are saved from death, which is hell. You see, those who accept Christ, who become Christians, are cleansed by his blood, and they will be saved from hell. And then the Jewish people were commanded by God, by God to eat the lamb that evening and be ready to go as soon as possible. And so they ate the Paschal Lamb, which is, a figure of, which is a figure of Holy Communion. We eat the Paschal Lamb at Holy Communion every time we go to Mass and Communion. Then after they had eaten their meal that evening, all together in their different homes, Moses directed the people to follow him, and he led them into the desert toward the Red Sea. I think the rest of the story you know. God worked the miracle by which they went through the Red Sea on their way to the Promised Land. Now, of course, going through the Red Sea by the miracle of God is a symbol of baptism because they had to go through the Red Sea, the waters of the Red Sea, in order to be going toward the Promised Land and to be free from the Egyptians who were chasing them. And so the Egyptians, as it were, were a figure of sin. The Jewish people, who were slaves to the Egyptians, were a symbol of the soul which was a slave to sin before baptism. And going through the Red Sea, being delivered from the Egyptians, was a figure of baptism by which we are cleansed from sin. We are no longer a slave to sin. And we are on our way to the Promised Land. Of course, in a certain sense, we are in the Promised Land. We are in the church. But the true, our true home is going to be in heaven. And we are on our way to the Promised Land now. Going, as it were, through the desert. We're wandering through the desert. And that brings us to the, the third figure of Holy Eucharist in the Old Testament. Which was the manna sent by God from heaven to the people. Remember the Jews when they're traveling through the desert, we're continually complaining against God. We have no water, we have no food, do this and that, and this and that. So they didn't trust in the power of God. So Moses interceded for them, and God sent them manna from heaven. The bread-like substance which fell from heaven landed on the ground. They picked it up and they ate it. It had a honey taste. And it was a miracle by God. And they ate this, this bread from heaven, in order to nourish themselves on their way through the desert to the Promised Land. There's a striking figure in that. Because we, as Christians, are in a certain sense in a desert on the way to the Promised Land. Of course, we also call it the Valley of Tears, as we say in the Hail Holy Queen. We are living, as it were, in a little desert where we don't have always that spiritual consolation, but we have dryness and aridity, and so... It's easy to fall back and to complain against God like the Jewish people did. But God sent them the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. And so, he sends us the bread from heaven. But no longer is it a figure of God, it is God himself. 
So the bread from heaven that we receive is Holy Communion. It's God himself in Holy Communion. And this nourishes us on our journey to the Promised Land. But just as many Jewish people did not make it to the Promised Land because they complained and turned against God and fell back into sin, so also many Christians, many Christians, because of their infidelity to God, will not be saved. So make sure you are faithful to God. It's not enough to be in the true faith. You have to practice your faith. That's a very good example in the Old Testament, the Jewish people wandering through the desert. They complained and complained and rebelled against God. God punished them, and many never made it to the Promised Land. An entire generation never made it to the Promised Land. God punished them. He said, okay, uh, because they, did, they complained so much, God said, this generation shall not enter the Promised Land, but your children will, but you won't. So he made them wander in the desert till they all died off, and then the children came into the, into the Promised Land under Joshua. Moses had died too. And the last figure, or another figure in the Old Testament of the Holy Eucharist, is found in the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, we read, For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. And the Catholic Church draws from this text to demonstrate the prophecy of the Holy Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. That the Mass is a sacrifice, not, a, not just a meal. As it says here, there is a sacrifice offered to my name, a clean oblation. Now, most sacrifices were bloody, but a clean oblation is, is a peculiar, a special type of sacrifice. And so it signifies the Mass because it's offered everywhere among the Gentiles, the whole world not just among the Jewish people. So these are the, the main figures of the Holy Eucharist in the Old Testament. Now in the New Testament, our Lord himself revealed slowly the doctrine of the sacrament of Holy Eucharist. He had to reveal it slowly in order that they understand. But even then, as you read through the New Testament, you will see that many of the people simply refused to understand, refused to believe what he was saying. In the New Testament, the first figure that our Lord used to teach the people of, of the Holy Eucharist was the multiplication of the bread, you know, the loaves and the fishes. They had been listening to him all day, um, the Sermon on the Mount, they were tired. It was getting late in the day. It was too late for them to go home and buy food. And they did not have enough food where they were, so our Lord told them to recline, and he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He did this on two separate occasions. Well, at least two, two that are written down in the, in the Bible. <clears throat> and then he explains more clearly, he reveals more clearly the doctrine of the Holy Eucharist. This is in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. It was at the beginning of this Gospel that we read the account of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And later on, he goes to work a couple of other miracles, and then the people keep following him. And that is when our Lord turned to them and spoke to them about 
the true bread from heaven. And he said to them, as they were following him, as I told you, they kept following him as he worked his miracles and preaching. And first, so they were seeking him, and then our Lord turned and he said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, you seek me, not because you have seen signs, but because you have eaten of the loaves and have been filled. So they were seeking him because he fed them. Not so much because of the signs he worked. Then he continues, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for that which endures unto life everlasting, which the Son of Man will give you. So right, See, there's the revelation. The bread that will never perish, the Son of Man will give you. And then he continues and he says, Amen, amen, I say to you. Moses did not give you the, the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So our Lord is now making the, uh, um, the symbol between himself and the bread of heaven because he has come down from heaven. And as you notice, he said that Moses did not give you the bread of heaven. He sent manna from heaven, but our Lord is now saying it was not the bread from heaven. For the bread, the true bread will be the bread which will come down from heaven itself. And they said to him, therefore, Lord, give us this bread always. So they did not quite understand that it was going to be something supernatural. Of course, many people in this life, they look for, for food that will give them eternal health, as it were. No, So this is what they were thinking first. They were thinking, oh, a special bread which will make us live forever. But, but Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I have told you that you have seen me and you do not believe. Already he saw that the people would not believe him. Or many of the people, or most of the people. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And him who comes to me I will not cast out. And here's a mystery already by which our Lord says those who will come to him will be sent to him from the Father. Now he says it someplace else in the New Testament. He says, no one can come to me unless he is attracted to me by my Father. It's a mystery of, of conversion through the faith of Christ. We must not, of course, delve, you know, delve, into, delve into the mystery of, of that because it leads into many errors. In fact, the main error which that would lead to is predestinationism. So stay away from trying to understand you know, how God attracts people to the true faith. Just be thankful that you have the true faith. Now this is, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should lose nothing of what he has given to me, but that I should raise it up on the last day. And there's another revelation of the, of the resurrection of the last judgment. For this is the will of my Father who sent me, that whoever beholds the Son and believes in him shall have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Of course, the Jews began to murmur, well, what are you saying to each other? What does he mean he's the bread from heaven? He's come down from heaven. What's, what's he saying? 
because they know that his mother is Mary and his father is Joseph from Nazareth. And in answer, Jesus said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has listened to the Father and has learned comes to me. So you see, it doesn't, it doesn't suffice just to listen to the, the voice of God. You have to learn what God teaches you. <clears throat> no, not that anyone has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes in me has life everlasting. And then he continues, and now it's the explicit revelation of the Holy Eucharist. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and have died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that if anyone eat of it, he will not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. So you see, the people can see right away. He's going to give us his flesh to eat. What is he, a cannibal? He did not see the, the words of, of the supernatural meaning of his words. And so the Jews, they began to argue and they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And what did our Lord respond? He said, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. So he didn't, didn't say, well, I didn't mean that. He, he just reaffirmed it. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you won't have life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and as I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. So our Lord is making it very clear, first of all, that this bread of heaven which the people shall eat in the New Testament will not be as, of the, as the bread of heaven in the Old Testament, as the manna. Because the manna was a figure of Christ. And it symbolized, it signified the presence of God. And the New Testament, under the forms of bread, will be the real presence of Christ. Because the figure was in the Old Testament. It is not in the new. And so the non-Catholics, the Protestants, even many Novus Ordo people who say that the Holy Eucharist is, just signifies the presence of Christ, they make a very great mistake. Because the figure of Christ was in the Old Testament. The manna was the figure of Christ. In the New Testament, the Holy Eucharist is Christ himself. It's going to be God himself, the real presence so even the Protestants who have their communion service, you see, they, 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 they fail, they err. They say this just symbolizes Christ. Well, 
Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. It is now Christ himself in which religion teaches the real presence. It's the Catholic religion. Therefore, it is the Catholic religion which is the Church of God, the religion which God has, has founded. After our Lord spoke these words to the people, they began to murmur and argue among themselves even more. They were scandalized. He really means it. He really means that we have to eat his body and drink his blood. Oh, this is crazy. They didn't stop to, to ask what he meant. You know, they didn't simply believe the words of God and try to understand later. See, they wouldn't believe unless they understood first, and that's a sin. See, if God says something, you must believe, even if you don't understand. See, the proud man will prefer to understand first and then believe. That's a sin of pride. See, God expects us to believe without understanding sometimes. So our Lord said to them, Does this scandalize you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is not the Spirit that gives life. The flesh, it is the Spirit which gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of, among you who do not believe. So our Lord is saying that the words have a, have a supernatural meaning. They're not just a carnal meaning. They will not be eating his flesh and blood, cutting it off, off of him. But in a more mystical, a more supernatural way. A spirit, you know, more spiritual, supernatural way. This will be in Holy Communion under the forms of bread and wine. But because they did not believe the words of Christ, who proved himself to be divine, then God did not give them more grace to understand. And it was their fault. And then he said, But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was who should betray him. And he said to them, this is why I have said to you, no one can come to me unless he is enabled to do so by my Father. That is a mystery which you must not seek to understand. Then he turned, and then after he spoke these words, many of his disciples left. He said, we cannot hear this. It's too hard to hear. We refuse to hear this. We can't understand. So they left him. And our Lord turned to the apostles, and he said to his apostles, do you wish to leave me also? Of course, St. Peter stood up and he said, and he says to them, Lord, where shall we go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. No one else does. At least, at least he, they believed that Christ had the words of God. They didn't understand yet, but they believed. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So at least they made a profession of faith. Ah, but then our Lord, he looked at the twelve one more time and he said to them, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Of course, you know who he's talking about. Judas, because he knew already that Judas would betray him. But he still chose Judas as an apostle. So that is the, the first explicit revelation of the Holy Eucharist in the New Testament. And of course, it is realized at the Last Supper. Our Lord institutes the sacrament of Holy Eucharist which, of course, is united to the sacrifice of the Mass. The Holy Eucharist is not only a sacrament, but is a sacrifice. 
But it's something important to understand, especially with the crisis that we have in the church today. The Holy Eucharist does not simply mean Holy Communion. It means, first of all, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, by which Christ offers himself again to his Father in an unbloody manner for the remission of our sins, for our, our redemption, our sanctification, should I say. The continuous work of Christ, the redemptive work of Christ through his church, through his priests. And by uniting yourselves to the sacrifice of Christ, then you can, then you can receive Christ in Holy Communion. For the sacrifice, the spirit of sacrifice must be there first. Otherwise you will not profit when you receive Holy Communion. This is what our Lord is trying to teach us when he suffers and dies on the cross. If you want to go to heaven, you must be crucified first. Of course, in, in different ways according to your state of life. That's the, the sufferings we have in this life for Christ. I don't think we'll, I don't think we'll have time to get into the, the discussion of the matter and form of the Holy Eucharist. That's more of a theological dissertation anyway, and a point of controversy anyway today. So we will stay away from that right now. But the Holy Eucharist, as I said, is not only a sacrament, but is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice by which Christ continues his work of redemption and sanctification among the people of the world throughout all ages of time, all time. And it is a sacrament of unity. The sacrament of unity. Because as you know, all Christians belong to the mystical body of Christ. Therefore, the more you become attached to Christ, the closer you become united to Christ, the closer you become united to each other because you belong to the same body. And it is by receiving Holy Communion that you can become the closest to Christ because you receive Christ himself. This is why the Holy Communion is called the sacrament of unity, of Christian unity. Because it unites people in Christ in his mystical body, and then the members become close, close, more closely united. And this should be one of the effects of, of frequent communion in a parish. It should become closer and closer together, like a family. Of course, I'm sure many of you know families, many of you have families. And we all know that brothers and sisters fight. So even in the parish, the brothers and sisters of the parish will fight. This is normal. It's not good, but it's normal. Okay. Okay. But they still must stay in the family. They must not fight and so angry that they walk off and leave. They must work it out, you see, under the father of the family, who is, the, of course, the pastor of the parish. There's always a means to preserve unity if it's done through proper channels. That's for sure. So this is why it's called the sacrament of Christian unity. Because it unites yourself, it unites you to Christ, to his mystical body, of which you are all, of which you are, are all members, as St. Paul says in his epistles. Lastly, I would like to speak a few moments on conditions for receiving Holy Communion. We are all, I think, encouraged to receive communion frequently if we can, but to make the proper preparations. And by receiving communion frequently, we are told that we will become saints. Okay. Yes, yeah. but there are conditions, always conditions, because God does not take away your free will. God will not make you a saint without you, you see. You can prevent him from making you a saint. 
So there are certain conditions. I think you know the essential conditions, first of all. You must be in the state of grace. State of grace. Never, ever, ever go to communion if you fall into mortal sin. Go to confession first. To do so would be like to go to Christ on the pillar and scourge him again at the pillar after knowing that he is God. So never, never, ever do that. Accept any humiliation and not going to communion if it ever happens. But people, they shouldn't rash judge. They may just think, well, he may have gone to another mass today or he just wants to be more prepared for tomorrow. Well, don't care what people think. And while we're on this subject, sometimes it may happen that the devil tempts very violently a soul. Now, if a soul is fighting and trying its best to stay out of mortal sin, normally it happens with, let's say, impure thoughts. If he fights and stops and then he doesn't realize, doesn't know how much consent he gives. Did I commit a mortal sin? Did I commit a venial sin? I don't know. He's worried, should I go to communion now? I may have committed a mortal sin. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I did. Okay, if the soul, or if you, ever find yourself in this position, and you can honestly say to yourself, I, I don't know if I did. I, I don't think I did. I may, I may have. I, I don't think I did. I didn't realize it. I, well, you see, if there is that sincere doubt, then know that you did not commit a mortal sin. At least it was not subjective. You weren't guilty of a mortal sin. You didn't have the realization, at least. And if you find yourself in that position, you may go to Holy Communion. You don't have to anyway. But you may go to Holy Communion. Just make a good act of contrition, an act of sorrow for whatever consent you may have given because you didn't commit a mortal sin. And just go to confession the next time you go to... Uh, just confess it when you go to confession the next time you go to confession because there's no mortal sin. And if you know for sure there's no mortal sin, well, then just dismiss the thought and tell God you love him and you'd rather die than to commit that mortal sin. It's often hard because the temptations which assail us, assault us like this, are the ones which are very tempting to us. So we say in our heart that we don't want this, but perhaps there is a temptation to desire because it is attractive. That's otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation normally. As long as you, in your heart you, you despise that temptation because it will separate you from God, then no matter what else you may feel, you know, in, whatever, there's no, there's no sin. So don't let the devil cause you to stay away from Holy Communion. You need to receive Christ to be stronger. And so go to him if you can, if you are able to, if you're, not in, if you're in the state of grace. The next condition, you must have observed the, the required fast. Just a few words on the fast. Uh, you know that they've been changed through the, the, the church. Okay, you know that presently the law of the church binding under the pain of mortal sin, under mortal sin, is one hour from liquids and food, including alcohol. Water no longer breaks the fast. That is what is binding under the pain of mortal sin. So we can't say that the other stricter uh, fasting is still binding under the pain of mortal sin. You can't do that because you're not, we're not the church. But the Society of St. Pius X strongly encourages the people to observe the, uh, the fast as set down by Pope Pius XII, which is three hours from food and alcoholic beverages and one hour from liquids. Water does not break the fast. Those who prefer to even observe the midnight fast do something very salutary. It's fine. But don't make other people feel guilty or less holy because they don't do the same. It's already a sign you're not doing it out of love of God but out of pride. So, so that's the second condition. You must have observed the required fast to receive communion. 
But then when you receive communion, there are also some conditions. Remember, Christ, or God, is love. Therefore, if you want to profit from communion, you must be free from hate. You must be free from any dislike towards anyone. You must be free from any resentment towards anyone. Otherwise, you will not make progress. In fact, spiritual writers have said, if you see people going to communion frequently, or even every day, and you see that they don't become better, they don't become more charitable, they stay the same. It's because of this. Because they do not root out perhaps a dislike towards other people. They keep that little bit of a little bit of hatred inside. And so they never grow. Because love cannot grow where there is hate or where there is dislike. And another reason which will cause a soul not to grow even when receiving communion daily is pride. To think, I go to communion, mass and communion every day, I must be becoming a saint. That's pride. Now, if you read the lives of the saints, the closer they became to God, the more they realized that they were not worthy of God. So let us receive communion with the virtue of humility, with humility. Another reason why daily communion will not help people grow in virtue or become holier is the spirit of disobedience. We must show obedience to our superiors because true love is born in true obedience, in humble obedience. So if you have a tendency to have a spirit of rebellion, know that you will not make very much progress in the spiritual life, even if, 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 if any, you may not make any. But how can you learn to love God if you do not show true love by humble obedience toward your superior? So all of these things are necessary already to profit from Holy Communion. Of course, what else is necessary is devotion. You must never go to communion out of habit. I mean, it's good to have, as it were, a habit of going to daily Mass, as that's good. But the habit in the right sense, a habit which becomes virtuous, you renew your love of God when you go. You don't just do it unconsciously without attention. Remember, a good habit, a good supernatural habit, is called a virtue. While a bad habit is called a vice. So habits are good. A good habit is good. But make sure that it's not unconscious, done unconsciously. Make sure you have the attention every time you do, you, when you go to Mass, or when you say your prayers. And so you should have devotion when you go to Holy Communion. Devotion? What is devotion? A devout soul. Some of you have, have been told this before. Devotion is to charity as the flame is to the fire. So a person is in a state of charity, right? The state of sanctifying grace is charity. Devotion is when that charity bursts in flames. You know, it's when you really make a special act of love of God, something fervent towards God. That's devotion. And that is a devout soul, you see. So have devotion when you go to communion. You should grow each time when you go to communion. It's not going to be something you're going to notice so much every day, from day to day. You'll notice, though, over a period of time that you realize you're able to be more patient in this, in this situation or that situation or whatever it may be. You'll see the work, God, the work of uh, the grace of God working in your soul. And something else which I don't want to omit is thanksgiving after Mass, after communion. Remember, we do have an obligation out of charity 
and out of respect for the Blessed Sacrament, to make a thanksgiving after Holy Communion in some way. So those who receive Holy Communion at Mass should try to stay a few moments after Mass to make a thanksgiving. You don't have to stay for 10, 15, 20 minutes. A few minutes, though, if you can. If it's a, if it's a long time after Holy Communion, then you have, of course, plenty of time to make a thanksgiving, especially if you're the first one to receive Communion. You have the other 400 people after you. But you must make a thanksgiving, you see, after Holy Communion. If you go to, for example, if you happen to go to an early Mass and there are just very few people, you go to Communion, then let's say you leave right after Communion, you go out and talk to your friends. That's a venial sin. Because you are not showing respect to God himself, whom you have received. You see, you did not receive Communion correctly, perhaps. It's not a mortal sin. It's a, little, it's a venial sin of disrespect toward the Blessed Sacrament. If you have to leave Mass right away because you have to go to work, well, it's different. Make the, the best Thanksgiving you can in the car, or if you have to say hello to somebody, just say what is necessary. God isn't unreasonable either. But don't be like, be like some people, or don't, be, uh, don't fall into the bad habit of thinking that your Thanksgiving after Mass or from Holy Communion ends when you leave the chapel. No, you see. The saints say that you must carry Christ with you when you leave the chapel. Your love of God must continue during the day. And so if you have to leave Mass early for some reason to go cook in the kitchen or to whatever, you know, that should still stay inside of you. You should be able to make a thanksgiving wherever you go. But oftentimes a priest is, you know, a priest has to see people right after Mass. Well, if he can't go back into the chapel because of some necessity, well, he has to at least be reserved inside to make a thanksgiving in, in his treating with, with the people. And then later on, if he can, to have some moments of silence. But that should be more of an exceptional thing. Think of Archbishop Lefebvre oftentimes. After this, the pontifical mass, he's assaulted all these people, you know. So, so he has to be, you have to have that, the spirit of continual thanksgiving to God. So you can make up in times of, uh, of exception like that. So I hope this helps you to understand a little more the beauty and the greatness of the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. And I encourage all of you to receive communion frequently, but make the proper preparation and the thanksgiving. And if you want to become a saint, there's no better way than to receive Christ himself. But prepare correctly. If you receive Christ himself, prepare to accept the example that Christ gave you, which is the example of obedience, self-sacrifice, and humility. If you're not willing to follow those three virtues, then you see you won't be receiving Christ as profitably. So pray for that grace to, to make a good preparation for Holy Communion and to love our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast so that more people can hear the beauty and truth of traditional Catholicism. For more news, resources, and updates, you can visit the U.S. District website at sspx.org or the English news website of the Society at fsspx.news.